And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgil Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. Ah, yes, rock and rolling through the week and uh, having a lot of fun here in the dojo. We're going to continue with uh, a deep dive into uh, icon veneration. We haven't really touched, I think, hardly at all the aspect of uh, honoring icons, venerating icons, and... uh, Specifically, uh, this idea of veneration of icons and the Council of Nicaea too. Uh, this has recently, within social media, you know, uh, has become a hot button issue about the development of icons uh, between Catholics and Protestants. And uh, our guest today is Swan Sona. Swan Sona has done a lot of research in this area. And uh, he has a fantastic channel on YouTube that I highly recommend, Intellectual Catholicism. And uh, he's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. And that's what we're going to talk about, Veneration of Icons and the Nicene Council, number two. Uh, On this side of the break, we're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with the Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the Abuse of Fallacy. And we're also going to meet an early church father, um, I have to confess, um, when I first started in apologetics and getting familiar with the early church fathers, I uh, this was not a father that I, I've seen on list and, and I've heard quoted, but never really paid much attention to until I got seasoned. Then I realized, wow, uh, he's very important in many respects. It is St. Optoptus of Melibus. St. Optoptus of Melibus. So, got a great show in store for us today. So, let's begin by welcoming you all to the show. So, welcome aboard all of you listening on radio around the country and, of course, our live stream peeps. And, of course, this program is put into podcast form, and it's out there in many, many distribution centers. And uh, I want to welcome all of you listening around the world and also into the future. <laughs> it's uh yeah that's kind of fun to think about you know that that uh w- w- here in the dojo we extend our into the future and uh you're all welcome welcome aboard everyone um by the way you can access the podcast version of our show uh right there on virginmostpowerfulradio.org which is the flagship website of Virgin Most Powerful Radio and uh, just click on Hands-On Apologetics or any of the other great shows Virtual Most Powerful Radio produces. And boom, you got them all right there in archive form. You can listen to it, watch it, share it with friends, download it, do whatever you want. And uh, I think, you know, if this is an issue that you're dealing with, uh, you definitely want to share it with friends and, uh, you know, uh, avail yourself of the podcast form so you can take notes. Uh, I know I'm going to be taking notes, so uh, that's why I love uh, the uh, Virtual Most Powerful Radio website, by the way. It's it's a great apologetic tool just because it enables you to listen and re-listen or re-watch um, 
programs, take notes, do stuff like that. Where if you're driving in the car or you're at work or something, obviously you can't do that. So use it, folks. It's just one of those beautiful tools that we've been blessed with with modern technology. Also want to give the official Dojo mailbox if you'd like to get a hold of me. Just go to questions at handsonapologetics.com. That's the official Dojo mailbox. It does come directly to me in my email box, and I do try to answer it your emails. Um, so, you know, just FYI, that means if you haven't heard from me in a while, um, shoot me another email because uh, it's possible, you know, all the filters and things like that, it's, it's possible that things could get misplaced. So, um, you know, just do that. If you would, I'd appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. We've we've caught up. Um, I was just thinking uh, we uh, we are rock and rolling on my YouTube channel. Uh, hands, uh, Not hands-on apologetics, but uh, Apocrypha Apocalypse on YouTube. Uh, where we dedicate the whole channel into, I think, one of the most important or pivotal issues between Catholics and Protestants. And that is the issue of the Old Testament canon. Uh, as you know, Protestant Bibles don't have seven Old Testament books that are found in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. And it's important for Catholic apologists to know the background and the answers to why there are two different Bibles. And uh, like I said, I think it's it's really one of the most important questions. It's also one of those uh, issues that Protestants really don't have a good answer for. So uh, check it out, folks. If you haven't already, go to Apocrypha Apocalypse on YouTube. If you like it, please subscribe, like, leave some comments. All that good stuff, it increases the uh, viewership, and we appreciate that. Um, also, um, yeah, I would, please continue your prayers. I am going to be going down to Steubenville at the end of the month, and I'm going to tape a uh, course on my brand-new book, The Gospel Truth, How You Can Know What uh, Christ Taught. Actually, Yesterday's program, I went through a chapter in the book, or at least little highlights from the chapter. And uh, like I said, it's uh, <laughs> it's coming down to the wire, and it's so hard to condense things for me. I I want to I want to include everything, you know. It's just part of my nature, and it's just tough to figure out what I need not to say rather than what to say. So please keep me in your prayers for that project. I truly appreciate it. Okay, enough of that. Let's go to our Finding the Fallacy for today. It's the Abusive Fallacy. It's also known as the Ad Hominem Fallacy. Uh, the argument attacks a position by appealing to the despicable qualities, moral turpitude, love that word, and overall lowliness and meanness of a person who holds the position. So it attacks the messenger rather than the message, and that's the quintessential ad hominem. So abusive uh, fallacy is more or less an AKA for that very common fallacy. Uh, I love Trent Horn's advice. Whenever you're uh, hit with an ad hominem, what you want to do is absorb an attack. You know, concede hypothetically that what they say is true, whatever it is, and then refocus. So if they say you're mean-spirited or something like that, just say, fine. Let's say hypothetically I am mean-spirited. But nevertheless, what about the objection or what about my question so you absorb it refocus put it back where it should be namely having them address your actual argument and that's our finding the fallacy for today the abusive fallacy all right let's meet our early church father for today is saint optoptus of melibus um 
the Donatists were the logical heirs of the Anna, Anabaptistic uh, sacramental practice of St. Cyprian of Carthage. Um, as you remember, uh, St. Cyprian uh, would not allow uh, the validity of the baptism of heretics. So he had, uh, if they were if people were uh, baptized in a heretical group, even validly, you know, he would say it's not valid, and therefore they had to be rebaptized. Well, the Donatist, according to Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers, is their logical error. The Donatist schism began around the year 312 A.D. with an immediate antecedence going all the way back to about 303 A.D. It lasted for just a hundred years, and it confined itself always to Africa. Um, when Kakelian, I believe that's how it's pronounced, uh, was consecrated Bishop of Carthage in 311-312 A.D., a rich widow, Lucilla by name, who had personal spite against him, succeeded in her design to have him uh, have a, a considerable part of the Carthaginian uh, clergy refuse to recognize the validity of his consecration on the grounds of his unworthiness of being consecrated bishops. Uh, Felix in particular, uh, being accused of having surrendered the books of Scripture during the Diocletian persecution, a charge which was subsequently found to be false. The dissenting party chose a lector, one Majorinus, as bishop, and he was consecrated by Donatus to be identified later as Donatus the Great, who gave name to the schism. So basically, it denied the validity of the consecration based on the unworthiness of the recipient. Um, it was only in latter days of the schism that both parties called uh, their best advocates, uh, the Parmenian writer on behalf of the Donatist and Optoptus on the Catholic side. Little is known of St. Optoptus except from his own writings against Parmenian, the Bishop of Melibus in uh, Africa, Presumably, he was born about the year 320, and he died about the year 385. And, uh, yeah, so like I said, when I first started in apologetics, St. Optoptus, I, I was familiar with the name, but never really familiar with uh, his writings until later on, where I realized uh, he has left some very important passages um, concerning largely the papacy. And um, gee, I'm looking at the clock. I, we don't have enough time to read some of it. But uh, check it out, folks. You can check out his work. It's available free online, like all the early church fathers, or, or I should say most of the early church fathers, at newadvent.org. And uh, you can read it for yourself. But, uh, yeah, there are some apologetic gems within his work at St. Optoptus of Milibus, especially in regards to the papacy, which is another you know, crucial topic that I think Catholics and Protestants and uh, in some sense also Orthodox uh, focus on. So that is our early church father for today, St. Optoptus of Melibus, and talking about uh, controversies and debates and so on and so forth. Uh, we're going to talk about the veneration of icons, which has lately been a hot-button topic on social media and specifically the Second Council of Nicaea with Swan Sona. So you definitely don't want to miss that. You listen to Hands-On Apologetics. Stay tuned, folks. We will be right back. 
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. And like I said, you know, it's it's funny how uh, all the goings-on on social media, some topics just seem to bubble up to the top. And one of them is Veneration of Icons and the Second Council of Nicaea. And help us work through all the details. We have Swan Sona with us. Swan is a philosophy student at Kansas State University and a Baptist convert to Catholicism. He runs a podcast and YouTube channel called Intellectual Catholicism, where he aims to conserve ancient Christian thought of politics, morality, and theology. Swan has published two papers, one in Cornell's University's Logos Undergraduate Philosophy Journal, and another at Haythrop uh, Journal about the biblical and historical roots of the papacy. And Swan, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Oh, Gary, it's great to be back on. And, uh, you know, we, we've been trying to do this for a while, but I got busy. But I do have to uh, correct the biography. I should have sent okay. you an updated one. So now I'm a, I'm a student of the New Testament. I'm studying New Testament early Christianity at Harvard. So that's oh, where I'm going wow. next. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll definitely need to change that. Yeah. Um, yeah, you might want to uh, send an email to the good folks at Catholic Answers because— uh, yeah, uh, I thought that was the most updated bio, but apparently not. So awesome! Wow, that's that's. Uh, so uh, I take it we're going to start classes there, or have you already started? Yeah, I'll start um, orientations at the end of August, and then we begin classes in September. So it's coming up. Oh wow! Okay, so then you're going to be even more unavailable <laughs> once that starts. Uh, we'll see. So yeah. That's awesome. We'll keep you in our prayers. Um, yeah, so the issue of uh, veneration of icons, um, you know, it's funny. I, I think we're part of the same circle of, I, I don't know, uh, read uh, listeners or, or watchers or something on YouTube because it's, it, uh, the issue came out, I think it was Gavin Orland uh, proposed that that was like one of the main reasons he would say not to be Catholic is this issue of icon venerations. And then uh, there was all these response videos, and, and you put out some really great in-depth discussions on that. So maybe you can bring us a little bit up to speed on, like, why is this important? Well, yeah, I mean, so I think the first thing is, um, for, for a lot of Protestants, I think that this idea of icon veneration can be a major hang-up. I mean, put this on the scale with maybe, like, you know, the Marian dogmas and the veneration of saints— and then you throw an icon veneration and it just becomes really difficult for some Protestants to accept that that could be biblical, that that could be uh, something theologically valid for a Christian to do. So I think that's one of the major reasons why it's uh, important. But I'll also say, too, that I think Gavin Ortland in particular, because he's the main person I was responding to, he gave a very kind of articulate uh, objection or series of objections to icon veneration uh, you know, he did an original video, but then his more updated one, which was like an hour and 15 minutes where he just goes through various quotes from church fathers. It, I think it, it kind of disturbed a lot of Catholics, maybe some Orthodox too, thinking like, wow, were the church fathers against Nicaea too and icon veneration? So that's why like it's a very important issue because uh, not only is it an important issue for Protestants who are discerning Catholicism, but also for a lot of Catholics, it made them worried, like, wait, are the church fathers against Nicaea too? And then, you know, that kind of got the whole debate started. Yeah, and and that's great. It's uh, it's 
One thing I really like about Dr. Ortland is that he tries to give, you know, a substantive objection rather than your typical, it's not in the Bible or something like that. At least mm-hmm. he, he attempts to go in and bring out uh, things from the early church fathers. And that makes our, our apologetics even more richer, right? Because we got to dig into areas we probably wouldn't have. Yeah, and in my uh, in my four hour presentation, which was my response to Gavin, because I, you know, you can you can raise something uh, in just let's say a few minutes, but it could take hours to respond to. And Gary, you probably know this in your apologetics work. Someone can drop a question, and you're like, wait, there, you need to go through like twenty assumptions before you get to the actual answer, or else the person isn't going to buy your answer. So. That's why in the video, like I, you know, on my channel on on reason and theology, I spent a long time going through Gavin's co- uh, quotations of the Church Fathers. <laughs> I went into the Latin and the Greek. I went very in depth with it. So if you want the full kind of uh, response, uh, you know, I direct you to that video. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Well, uh, why don't you set up the 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 uh, problem? I I don't know uh, what angle you'd like to take for this program. Well, um, yeah, I, I guess that the uh, uh, well, yeah, there, there's a lot of different directions that that one could take the the issue of uh, Nicaea too. So, I think maybe what I'll do first is just kind of explain, you know, what what was the context of Nicaea too, and uh, what was leading up to the council. So, basically, you know, Nicaea two happens in 787. You have like seven sessions at the council, and it's a response to a previous not an ecumenical council, not even a Catholic council, a council or a synod known as Hyria in 754. And uh, this was the iconoclast council where they got together and they said, okay, yeah, the the Bible based on the the second or the first commandment, however you number the 10 commandments, condemns the use of images. So we're not going to have those in our churches. We're not going to have them uh, as part of our liturgy or even our private lives. Uh, Hyria outlawed images in churches and in private homes. That's how radical and and broad it was. Uh, the other thing, too, was that they argued, like, based on the incarnation, you know, the, that God became man, they said that you can't depict an image of Christ because their argument was that if you look at an image of Jesus and you say that that's Jesus, then it would be like the Nestorian heresy where you say Jesus is a human person and you separate his divinity from his humanity in, a, in an inappropriate way. So <laughs> that's a very technical kind of series of arguments from Hyria, and then Nicaea II responds. And Nicaea II, uh, I guess, raises kind of four arguments in defense of icon veneration, and we can go through each of these. So the first kind of uh, argument that they give is uh, the idea that, look, the incarnation actually validates images, because even though Christ's deity was invisible— his humanity was visible. And what Jesus says, you know, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So clearly Jesus isn't saying that the, like, invisible world is superior to the visible world. Jesus isn't saying that uh, the visible world is bad. <laughs> if the visible world is bad, then what happens to the incarnation, right? Does Jesus become bad because he's visible? So anyway, that was like yeah. Nicaea II's response to the Hyria. And then the other thing, too, was that and I think this checks out because I've done research into like the intercession of saints, the veneration of saints in Second Temple Judaism, the Judaism of the time of Jesus and the apostles, uh, and the use of art 
in the Second Temple period, where basically uh, Nicaea II said that there is an apostolic foundation for the use of images, for the creation of images. And then they also use the argument that the church is indefectible, so we can't get this wrong, <laughs> you know. And and at the, up to that point, you know, in the in the eighth century where this is all happening, uh, high, uh, you know, the position of the iconoclast is actually really a radical rupture, because if you look at the history of the church up to that point, images were in churches, images were part of Christian life. That this wasn't a controversial issue to have images in churches. Now there were some. Uh, but let's say I wouldn't call them church fathers, but figures who thought otherwise. But they were always the minority, but they were a vocal minority. Uh, and then finally, in order to defend the veneration of images, the fathers of Nicaea too, they say, well, look, the honor given to an image goes to the one represented. So we aren't, and this is important because the catechism of the church says this too, when we venerate an image, when we pay it honor, when we, you know, kiss it, when we uh, maybe bow to it, we aren't treating the image as the end in itself. That is to say that we aren't saying the image is like the incarnation of that saint, right, or something crazy and pagan, right? Hmm. We're saying that the honor we give to the image goes to the one represented, just as, for example, if I have an image of my deceased friend and I, you know, you know hold it close to my heart. That honor that I give to the image is meant to go to the person represented. It's not just to the image itself. And so the argument is, is that if we can venerate saints, then why can't we venerate saints through their images, right? So right. that was kind of the argument there. Um, and they're – okay. So that's kind of the introduction for just the arguments on the table. Gary, you tell me how you want me to parse that out. Yeah. Um, well, actually, I have a question. Um, yeah. Since it's seventh century, uh, did Islam affect the like the Council of Hyria? Uh, were they kind of being um, uh, influenced by the growth of Islam, or was this before uh, Islam? Well, yeah. So Islam um, was already in existence by this time. There are some questions uh, among like historians on whether or not Islam affected, you know, the the iconoclasts. Mm -hmm. uh, from what I can tell. Uh, I, I'm not particularly sure on that question. Um, so what I try to do is I just try to stick to like the texts of the councils and then just look at their theological arguments. My my training as an undergrad, as you mentioned, was in philosophy. And so I, I kind of get a lot of joy from the arguments. And so I pick I, I was, you know, that's kind of how I research <laughs> and I see it, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, why don't we uh, you can maybe start touching on the first point if you want to expand a little bit more on it. Um, and because uh, we're coming up to a break in a, about a minute and a half or so, at least we can start going. Yeah. So, um, you know, of the four arguments that I mentioned at Nicaea two, let me just quickly focus on the incarnation and the indefectibility of the church. Right. OK. Um, so just with the incarnation, I, I think the debate between the iconoclast and the Catholic Church <laughs> was on, you know, what are the consequences of the incarnation for images? And I think the whole point was that, no, like if you saw Jesus in person, you wouldn't see the invisible deity. You would look at the human flesh before you and say, that is Jesus. And if you do that, you're not committing the Nestorian heresy. <laughs> and if that's yeah. true, right, you're not committing the Nestorian heresy if you worship Christ in his humanity. Um, obviously, they're not. it's not separate. 
uh, from his deity, right? It, it is that one person that is the second person, the Blessed Trinity, in human flesh. So the honor you give to the flesh of Christ goes to the invisible deity, right? So right. the whole point there is that Hyria was just wrong about <laughs> what the consequences of the incarnation were. They're kind of confused. Finally, just with indefectible identity, you know, the church is indefectible. And even uh, Nicaea too argued that, you know, given the past teachings of the ecumenical councils, uh, you know, images were instituted by the ecumenical councils as part of liturgy. So, you know, Hyria was trying to claim to be more consistent with the ecumenical councils than the Catholic Church, but then they got this wrong. And so it's like, well, okay, maybe you don't really know what the ecumenical councils teach. And if that's the case, the church is indefectible. That means that it can't ever universally go wrong on an issue. And the church universally has said that images can be part of our liturgy, that images are part of the Christian life. Well, then, you know, that's a huge problem for the iconoclast. And if you want the reference for that, uh, there was this Quinisex council that they treated as the continuation of, I believe, Constantinople II. So that was their basis from the ecumenical councils for the goodness of images. Very good. Uh, we're chatting with Swan Sano, talking about uh, veneration of icons. More to come right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Swan Sona of Intellectual Catholicism, talking about veneration of icons and the Second Council of Nicaea. And, um, yeah, great, great point, Swan, um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the two of the four arguments uh, the, about the idea of the incarnation, and especially, uh, you know, uh, that it was legitimate to worship Christ in view of his humanity because uh, you're worshiping a divine person. Mm-hmm. And so it actually, that's an endorsement of, you know, images rather than a negation of it. I thought that was a brilliant point. Yeah, and Gary, uh, you know, the other point on indefectible identity, I looked back at my notes and it was Constantinople three uh, that continued teaching, you know, that images can be part of liturgy. So I was one Constantinople off, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I corrected myself. <laughs> no problem. So, uh, yeah, and that's actually, that's much more formidable because uh, if I remember Quintessex, uh only a few canons were accepted in the West. Is that right? Yeah, I, I don't know if the whole council was accepted, but I'm, yeah, I, I, you know, that's why we don't, you know, explicitly consider it a full ecumenical council, but perhaps some canons were accepted as they were accepted in Nicaea too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, well, let's, uh, what about the other two arguments that Nicaea puts forward? Right. Uh, so I think that these two are kind of the more, let's say, um, more kind of pivotal ones. Of course, the incarnation is going to be the crown jewel, the, the thing that we are very concerned about. But I think when we're communicating with our Protestant friends who are, you know, they accept the incarnation, right? And perhaps let's say they have an Orthodox Christology. All right. <laughs> They're like, no, but show me the apostolic foundations for the, the use of images and the veneration of images, and then show me the the validity of venerating those images. So just very quickly on the point on the apostolic origins, Nicaea too consistently, explicitly says that the creation of images of figures of saints goes back to the time of the apostles. 
Nicaea 2 consistently, constantly says that. That's one of the hills that it's willing to die on. And so what's the evidence for that? Well, Gary, you know, I looked into evidence from the Old Testament and evidence from the Judaism of the time of Jesus. And what I found was uh, multiple kind of attestations that this is not just a crazy idea of the Catholic Church. So let me give you some examples. When it comes to uh, the, let's say, you know, how in, in the Catholic tradition, we bow, kiss, and uh, pray to the icons, right? Uh, because we believe that we could, you know, for example, kissing in the Old Testament and bowing was actually something that loved ones would do to each other. So when Moses sees his father-in-law Jethro, it says that he bowed and kissed him. So this is a biblical way of showing love and affection. Uh, when it comes to kind of the act of also bowing and praying towards a holy object, I think the clearest example is the temple. So in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, Psalms uh, 5, 7 to 8, it says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house, that is the temple. I will bow down toward your holy temple in awe of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies make your way straight before me. Uh, in the book of Daniel, when Daniel goes up to his room and he prays, uh, he prays towards Jerusalem and towards the temple, Daniel 6.10. Or, for example, King Solomon in Second Chronicles 6.34, he says uh, to the Israelites, when your people, God's people, go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you send them, and they pray to you toward this city, which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, and then so on and so forth. So the act of bowing and praying towards the temple was a regular part of ancient you know, Judaism, of ancient Israelite religion. So that kind of moved the ball forward for me. But then when I also looked into examples from uh, the book of Maccabees, uh, we have, for example, if I can pull up the passage here, uh, we have, for example, at the end of Judas Maccabeus's life, uh, in 1 Maccabees 13, 27 to 30, or rather Simon, it says here in 1 Maccabees 13, 27 to 30, and Simon built a monument over the tomb of his father and his brothers. He made it high so that it might be seen with polished stone at the front and back. And if you read the rest of the passage, he builds small pyramids. He has a design of a, like a ship so that sailors, when they go by, can see the monument. So in ancient Judaism, then, you know, we have this idea that, oh, the Jews would never have images. They would never, you know, do. And no, they did. And I think that's kind of a myth that we have about ancient Judaism. I guess one last point, and this is kind of one of my favorite ones. Um, so, you know, Jesus, when he when he talks about the Pharisees, he points out that the, the Pharisees, uh, especially in Matthew chapter 23, how they built, you know, monuments to the righteous. If you go to the book, if, if you go to the Matthew 23 and R.T. France in his commentary on the gospel of Matthew, he says this, the veneration of tombs of holy people and martyrs is a feature of Jewish as of many other cultures. And then he cites, for example, a, a first century text, Lives of the Prophets, a Jewish text that makes the point of mentioning where each of the prophets was buried, except, of course, Elijah, and indulges in detailed description of some of their times. So hmm. 
ancient Jews were venerating the tombs of these, you know, deceased saints, patriarchs, and matriarchs. Uh, they had monuments designed for them. They had art used with it. Uh, even in the book of Tobit, you know, it says that uh, pour out your your bread and your wine on the graves of the righteous. So, <laughs> you know, the, the veneration of these tombs that were kind of works of art in themselves, that was a part of ancient Judaism. And so my basic point here is that the idea that the apostles, who were themselves devout first century practicing Jews, that they would have also been part of this practice, that they would have, you know, endorsed it, uh, that just seems to me to be historic, historically uncontroversial. Unless you want to go back and say that the, you know, that the the pro, uh, that the uh, that the uh, uh, the apostles were actually Protestants in the first century, but that seems anachronistic, right? When you look at Judaism of the time, they had no problem with venerating their saints and especially venerating the physical objects of their tombs. Even uh, Jesus talks about how the Pharisees. Now Jesus doesn't condemn that the practice of venerating the tombs. He doesn't do that. What he says is, is you know, you build these monuments for the righteous. You decorate their tombs, but then you go out and you live like hypocrites, right? You would condemn these people that you're venerating. Jesus doesn't condemn the veneration. He condemns the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. That's important to mention there. But anyway, uh, I go into a lot of evidence and I just find that the idea of something like icon veneration, something like it existing in the time of Jesus and the apostles, <laughs> that makes historical sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, it's um, and and you know that practice kind of it still continues today. I think that's a really good object lesson. If you go through a cemetery and you see, a, let's say, a woman by a grave site, uh, maybe putting flowers, maybe even uh, you know kissing her hand and pressing the tombstone or something, she's not mm -hmm. worshiping the tombstone, right? I mean, right. any sensible person would say, no, she's expressing her love for the person that's died. And it's just like uh, Nicaea says, you know, it's it's through the object that you get to the prototype. Uh, and it's interesting, it actually has biblical basis, you know, that, that uh, they decorated tombs and so on and used icons or pictures, ornamentations, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, so there I, I just think that it, it puts a lot of pressure on Protestants to, let's say, not just dismiss what we're saying as Catholics, about uh, images really coming from the apostles. And even I, I, I've done research into like the cult of the saints and the intercession of saints in ancient Judaism. And what I found too was that they had remarkably similar ideas about the righteous dead being intercessors. Maybe we, I can discuss that another time with you, Gary, because I'm collecting more research on that. Uh, but your point about, uh, you know, you, you, when you cry at the, a, a loved one's grave, Right. Uh, the council cites Nicaea two cites um, a text from Leontios of Neapolis in the seventh century, where, if I remember properly, uh, he mentions how you know when you weep and you 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 know you you wet your your tears on let's say a, a clothing garment of your loved one, you aren't worshiping the garment, you're just expressing love and what that garment represents. Even you know today, Gary, you might be familiar with how. Uh, for example, uh, you know, my grandfather or just, uh, you know, elderly men, if they go out to, let's say, a diner that their deceased wife, that they used to go with her, and they sit down at that diner at their favorite spot, he orders a milkshake, and he has the image of her across from him. That's something I think that we've seen or 
that is like more common and doesn't seem so foreign to us? Because I know that for a lot of Protestants, when they look at icon veneration, they think it's this foreign, exotic, pagan thing. And then when you realize <laughs> we naturally venerate icons, then it becomes harder to see it as such a weird thing. Right. Yeah. 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 Very good. So, so you have this Jewish uh, background of uh, so on and so forth. How about um, when we get into Christianity, you know, uh, early centuries, is there any evidence of icons being venerated? Right. So when it comes to like the early church, um, I, I think one one thing to note is that <laughs> with the some of the earliest fathers, like or you know sources rather, like Tertullian and others, uh, the Acts of John, which is written about maybe the mid to late second century. The Acts of John, though, is it's not a, it's not a orthodox text. It's a, it's you know kind of a, an apocryphal heretical text, but it comes from the early early days of the church. And it's interesting because both Tertullian and this later text, the Acts of John condemn images. But in order to do that, you have to presuppose that images are somehow already part of the Christian life, right? And so I think that provides us some type of implicit evidence that images were already part of early Christianity, because you have this vocal minority who is saying, wait, what are we doing? You know, uh, why are we doing this and all that? Um, But then it's funny because then when you go through uh, the history of the church, you find consistently, and we can go into some of these sources, the great church fathers like Basil, Athanasius, St. John Chrysostom, well, all of them are saints, um, all these saints who are saying, yeah, images are okay. They're part of our life. And so that vocal minority lost, even if they were vocal. Yeah, yeah very good. All right. Well, uh, we're chatting with Swan Sona, talking about the veneration of icons in Second Council of Nicaea. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Swan Sona, talking about uh, veneration of images in Second Nicaea. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, you mentioned Acts of John and uh, Tertullian. Tertullian, of course, wasn't the most stable yeah. <laughs> out there either. He, I call him a part-time early church father because yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he kind of went into the church through the front door and out the back door, you know? Uh-huh. You know, and um, I look back at some of my research notes and I saw, I can give you some like uh, other kind of examples. So uh, Eusebius, great church historian, uh you know, he talks about how there's a story about the hemorrhaging woman in the Gospels who, you know, she just touches Christ's garment, right? And then she's healed. Uh, among the early Christian community, they believe that she then went on to build a statue of Christ. And then Eusebius talks about in his church history, if I, if that's the source, I think it is. Uh, but Eusebius does say that, you know, this statue was believed to be able to like heal or rather a plant growing out from the ground touching the statue was believed to actually be a cure for a lot of diseases. And so Nicaea too looked at that and said, well, there's an example, right, of an image coming from the time of the apostles that continues to this day. Uh, St. John Chrysostom, a great church father, he talks about how uh, after a certain saint had died, the whole town began to put up images of him in their shops, in their houses, they would pray to the image. They would ask for the intercession of that saint, and it brought them consolation. Uh, you know, and then you have other church fathers like Clement of Alexandria, who at least talks about how uh, 
you can have images of a dove uh, and other kind of Christian symbols. You can turn pagan symbols into Christian ones. And so this whole idea that like, you know, the early Christians were all iconoclastic, that's been, that's been rejected not only by kind of the, this new generation of historians who are looking back and saying, wait a minute, we were kind of dominated by Protestant biases and assumptions. And now we're looking back and we're seeing, wait a minute, that's not the appropriate way to view the early church fathers. So, you know, Robin M. Jensen, she has a book from idols to icons that kind of lays out this point. Hmm. But I mean, the bottom line is, is that, uh, you know, not only do you have the historical plausibility of, you know, the Jewish background showing that images were part of early Christianity and they were not viewed as like, you know, heretical or bad. But then you do have testimony from early Christians saying, oh, yeah, you can have images or even like St. John Chrysostom, you can have images to call upon that saint to intercede for you. Right. And, and uh, I go into all sorts of different examples uh, in, in my presentation, but I think this kind of shows that uh, Nicaea 2 was not <laughs> was not off its rockers so to speak. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very good. Yeah. I think, um, that one argument about going back to the time of the apostles would probably be the, the one point that would cause the most, uh, people to object. Right. Because mm. in our imagination, they're iconoclastic and then, you know, images is a later development. But like you said, uh, they must have, I mean, I'm sure they probably even had even more evidence that simply hasn't survived the ages, you know, that's yeah. one of the problems of, you know, doing these historical dives is we don't have access to all the information that they had. So um, they would have grounded it in something. Right. And I mean, you know, to, to create an image back then to have paint and to do like art was pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. So either if they did have images, they would have been kind of cheap, maybe. So they wouldn't have lasted the test of time. Um, the, the apostles were itinerant preachers. And so you can't really carry around a heavy icon as you're going around, you know, various <laughs> towns. So right. I think there's a lot of reasons to just kind of say, um, you know, uh, to, to be all right with, let's say, oh, you don't have an icon or a statue from the first century that survives. Well, you know, that's kind of archeology, span isn't it? So that's all right, but we do have testimony that survives. And I think that testimony is very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a, a verse in Galatians, I believe, where Paul says to the Galatians that uh, uh, before, something like before who yeah. dies, uh, uh, the crucifixion is displayed or portrayed. Uh, some people interpret that as a possible uh, use of an icon or a crucifix or something like that. What's your thoughts on it? Yeah, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> I looked into this as well. And I, from what I can tell, the scholarly community is kind of split. So they're kind of like we like or rather they're, they're kind of very cautious, I should say, about making any statements here because it's not exactly clear what's going on. So some, a lot of scholars take a sort of um, metaphorical interpretation like, oh, yeah, he's displayed before you. Maybe it's a reference to the Eucharist. Maybe it's a reference to just kind of um, – you know, I can say, for example, that uh, someone is displayed before me, but by that I mean like their reputation is kind of haunting me or the legacy they left behind. Uh, but there are some people who do argue that that's like maybe a reference to the Shroud of Turin. Uh, but like, I don't know, you know, I don't want to get too yeah. particular there because we only just have that one phrase. And uh, the language there does seem to imply like a, something being depicted. 
you know, like, uh, but, you know, it be, it's just really difficult to say what exactly that is. And so I'm just very cautious about kind of putting my foot down and saying, this is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you're looking at the early church fathers, I imagine that some of the early church fathers cautioned against, you know, uh, the veneration of icons lapsing into a kind of idolatry. Did you find any uh, things like that in the church fathers? Right. So um, a lot of the church fathers, from what we can tell, just looking at the context of their letters and their writings, they were condemning the pagan practice of kind of having like a, a cult around these images. So some of them talked about how, you know, with, with these images that are depicting these pagan gods, it's dangerous for Christians to be involved in that because maybe those pagan gods are actually demons. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you do, you have this theme and one of the difficulties is to what extent could you then make the leap, right, from the condemnation of pagan images to then saying that Christians can't have images. And what I what I think personally, and, and this is a, an opinion that many scholars now hold, is that you can't make that leap very neatly. So, you know, for example, uh, Augustine talks about how, you know, Augustine in one of his homilies on the book of Psalms, he makes fun of how the pagans have images, right? And how the, the pagans call out to these images for help. But in reality, they're just calling out to the gods that the images represent. And somebody might say, oh, well, there you go. Augustine would have been opposed to Nicaea too. But remember, Augustine was also a, a very strong defender of the veneration of saints. And he even, you know, when people kind of brought to him that, wait, isn't this like the pagan practice? Augustine would say, our practice is better though. So it's kind of, it's really difficult to make these kind of judgments about, oh, would, the ch would this church father have been opposed to Nicaea too? Because it's a lot of hypothetical reasoning. And based on the text, you can't really just make that sloppy one-for-one -one assumption. Because Gary, <laughs> you and I believe what the Catholic Church teaches. You and I believe in the veneration of icons. And we would also be opposed to the veneration of pagan images. And so they're not mutually exclusive positions, right? Uh, yeah, I yeah, can right. I can venerate Christian images and condemn the veneration of pagan images. So you know, you just none of the church fathers make a nice, clean sort of objection to Nicaea too that would cause anybody, I think, to actually be should doesn't actually make anybody properly worried. Yeah. Oh, excellent point. Excellent point. In fact, uh, I think that's that's a. Uh... A major point that we should walk away with is that, like you said, it's not mutually exclusive that the condemnation of the veneration of pagan idols that would necessarily follow over to the veneration, the legitimate veneration of saints or right. images of saints. Uh, yeah, because uh, for many people, they think of it as mutually exclusive, that if you condemn the one, you condemn the other. Right. But uh, they're really two different things. Yeah, excellent point. Uh, Swan, you know, uh, we're coming up the last few minutes of the program, and sure. usually what I want to do is just talk a little bit about what you've been doing and uh, a little bit about your channel and yeah. how people can access it. Well, Gary, there is one last argument, and I'll just go through it okay. quickly. And it was the veneration argument. The honor given to the type passes to the prototype. Two points very quickly. So the first is that this argument comes from St. Basil and from St. Athanasius, both great defenders of the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and they, they, they're kind of referencing Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that you can honor 
by honoring basically God the Son, you honor God the Father, right? Jesus is the the visible depiction of the invisible God. And what they were saying, basically, these two church fathers, was that, well, look, for example, when we honor the image of the emperor, there are not two emperors. That one emperor is represented in the image. And so if you honor the image of the emperor, you honor the one represented. Similarly, if you honor Jesus, who is the visible depiction of the invisible God, God the Father, then um, there isn't a conflict. You're not introducing two gods. It's still one God. And so that was the argument that the church fathers used. And they, and they assumed that images were a valid kind of analogy. Uh, the, the temple in Jerusalem, right? Um, people will say, well, they didn't venerate the temple in Jerusalem. Well, yes, they did. But they didn't treat the temple as the end in itself because it represented the divine presence. And so there you have the veneration principle already in use in the Old Testament to avoid idolizing the temple. So that's the basis, right, for the veneration argument of Nicaea too. Okay, now just to what I've been doing recently. So on intellectual Catholicism, you can find me on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Uh, I've been having a lot of guests on. Uh, recently, I had uh, the the was it the cordial Catholic Keith Little talk about oh, yeah. uh, Jerome and the mana episcopacy. So this idea of one bishop being on top. A lot of people think it's a later, you know, invention of the Catholic Church. Well, we found evidence from the early church that nope, that's how things were were done during the time of the apostles. So a lot of interesting stuff there. Uh, today I'm interviewing uh, Dr. Alan Fimister on uh, how the Reformation led to secularism. So we have a lot of interesting topics lined up wow. on intellectual Catholicism. And uh, yeah, Gary, I'm happy to be on your show, and thank you for having me again. Yeah, no, it's uh, the pleasure is all ours uh, because we appreciate your research and all the work you do, and uh, it's I, I love your channel, you know, and. And just that topic of uh, how the Reformation led to secularism, uh, that's in itself a fascinating story. So I look mm -hmm. forward to watching that. I actually did watch the, the Keith Little one on the Monarchy nice. Yeah, very interesting stuff, kind of uh, uncovering some uh, things that were conveniently left out through ellipses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you always and, have to look up your sources. <laughs> and I'll just say briefly that Gary, I'm trying to, uh, for the audience listening, I'm trying to get Gary on my show with a biblical scholar to talk about the canon, but that's still in the works. Awesome. And so we'll try to get that figured out. But uh, Gary, it's going to be great to see you on my channel again. All right. Yes. Yeah. I look forward to it. Uh, Swan, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Oh, it's been a delight. All right, Swan Sona, check out his channel, Intellectual Catholicism, on YouTube. And while you're there, subscribe, like, do all that stuff, uh, support our brother. Uh, great, great content. And it's unbelievable what the hour's gone, but coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk, coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. This is going to be all hands on all Bye-bye, everyone. Take care.